Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. So you're in for a real treat as we dig into some really interesting topics and use some big words all in the one sentence with the one and only Lucy Aframore, spoken word poet and radical dietitian. Over the past few months, I've had the absolute pleasure of assisting Lucy to bring her two-day WellNow lab training to Melbourne. And honestly, I can share with you that Lucy is one of the most warm, genuine and super, super smart people you'll ever meet. Her passion and commitment to elevating messages around weight-inclusive and justice-oriented approaches is truly inspiring. And as you'll hear, Lucy has done some real digging into how different theories intersect with how we understand, quote-unquote, health, and more importantly, how we can create and provide spaces in which people feel welcome to not only share their story, but also understand how that story came to be, and then how to move forward into holding themselves in compassion. Many of you will already be most familiar with Lucy's work as co-author of the book Body Respect, but there's a lot more to know about Lucy. If you want to know more of a backstory, including how Lucy came to doing this work, I would really recommend you go back and listen to the episode on Christy Harrison's Food Psych podcast, which gives you an absolutely wonderful idea of Lucy's background. The way Lucy describes her work is gorgeous. It's beautiful. She says, imagine a world where no one is starved of food, company or dignity, where no one wakes up ashamed of their body, dreading their next binge or being insulted for what they look like. In this imagined world, it is taken for granted that everyone should have access to food as a right and the opportunity to exercise safely. At the same time, we are clear that eating and activity are only one part of the picture of health. We work from the assumption that personal and population well-being means we have to teach compassion, address climate change and build a fairer world. Lucy says, I am a radical dietitian because I believe we need to make fundamental changes in how we talk about lifestyle, health and justice in order to make this a fairer, kinder world a reality. Lucy goes on to say, change is possible. It starts with us deciding not to accept the way things are done as inevitable and then figure out what to do differently. This figuring out process led, led Lucy to develop a new approach called Well Now. So in short, the Well Now approach teaches body respect and health gain for all. It integrates social factors, pays attention to trauma and supports people to improve their overall well-being. Well now bridges both self-care and social justice, which marks it as different from other approaches. It's effective, ethical, evidence-based and life-changing for clients and practitioners alike. So I'm not sure about you, but 
I'm sold. And if that sounds like your bag and you'd like to meet Lucy, you'll have several opportunities coming up. The first is the upcoming two-day workshop for professionals at the gorgeous Abbotsford Convent in Melbourne, Australia on January 31st and February 1st, 2019. The second is that Lucy is presenting at NEDIC in Toronto on May 9th and 10th alongside some other incredible colleagues under the theme of radical unlearning. You can learn more about Lucy at www.lucyafremore.com. So on a slightly different note, 2019 is going to be bringing some exciting projects for me at The Mindful Dietitian. I'll shortly be releasing spaces for a retreat with Diane Bondi in August in the Berkshires in the north of Massachusetts. Or actually, the Berkshires is in Vermont. Um, so I'm learning my geography along the way, as you can hear. And so contact me if you're keen, because we'll be um, selling all spaces on a first-come, first-served basis. And um, I'll also be sending out more webinars and courses out into the online learning space. So I'm really excited. There'll be training in mindfulness-based approaches, acceptance and commitment therapy, supervision, mindful eating skills, and really so much more. It's both overwhelming and exciting. So, um, so I'm sure you'll bear with me as I stick at the meditation and yoga, which keeps, keeps things kind of well in check. Um, so you can find all of this and more at a brand new website which is coming in February, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. So same website, new look, thanks to the team at LR Creative. If you're not already involved, please jump into the Mindful Dietitian Facebook group and we'll see you over there. All right, let's, uh, let's finish up with all that stuff and let's dig in to meeting Lucy and hearing more about what she has to say about learning unlearning and the power of creating a compassionate space. Lucy, welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. What an absolute thrill it is to have you here. Oh, hi, Fee. It's fantastic to be here. I don't know if I've ever met anybody quite as helpful as you are, Fee. Um, particularly because we barely know each other in, in person. So it's been really fantastic to get starting to get to know you. And I'm delighted to be on your podcast. It's such a pleasure to be talking with you and shortly meeting you in Melbourne. And as you say, we've been communicating online, which is absolutely terrific, but I'm sure we can all agree that in-person connections really elevate our ability to connect on a deeper level and have all those really important conversations where we can find real meaning in the work that we do together. So I'm thrilled and can't wait. So Lucy, to get us started, before we started recording, we were talking about sharing stories and the importance of how we are invited to tell our story and how that arises in dietetic practice. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit more to that, please? Fee, I think that's a really, really interesting question. And it reminds me just when we were just talking a little bit earlier as well of how we are in the therapeutic space. That the questions that we ask of each other make such a difference to the story that we feel able to tell. And I can think in, a, in one sort of really simple way, or even not necessarily the questions, but the, but the way that we, the spaces that we create in, for groups to occupy as well. So for, 
one example would be the hungerometer. So there's lots and lots of us using the hungerometer. And one thing that, if I'm working with groups on that, is to make sure that when I'm asking the group to generate words and terms that describe how they might feel at a zero and how they might feel at a 10, is to always make sure that I include a word, the same word on zero that I will put on 10. And words that we're not often encouraged to vocalize, so it might be smug. We're not often encouraged to celebrate being smug. And, or it, it might be safe, but it might be, it might be safe. To attach safe to, an, to what's seen as an extreme is quite a transgressive thing to do. So I think sometimes we encourage people to tell their stories by modeling, by not saying it in as many words, but by modeling, it's okay for you to show up in this space. You won't be judged for it. And I think there's things that we can, there's, there's things that we can learn to do. And then we can, when we've identified like the deep principles, we can then apply that in things that we might do really often like something as simple as a hungerometer. Yeah, I really relate to that, Lucy. Do you think, I'm curious to know a little bit more of your thoughts around us um, role modeling the actual words. So when you were talking about, um, for example, the word safe or, or, or smug. So are we um, kind of uh, kind of laying out the picnic rug with all the offerings and then um, and then folks are able to self-identify with certain experiences or certain the way things kind of um, fit together with them or are you or are you more saying we're aiming to create a space where um, you know the, the, the space or the picnic rug is laid out but actually there's there's that's kind of a blank canvas and people are navigating their own way so that's a really interesting metaphor um, because the idea of the picnic rug or in feminist theory is this idea of theory is quilt building and the way that I think of my own work is I've got outer perimeters. So your story matters, compassion, curiosity, connection. And then in feminist, in feminist theory building, the idea is that we get our own patterns within that, what that might look like. So there's, we've delimited it to some extent. For me, it's by values. What are the values and principles? And then the rest of it will take shape according to who's in the, who's in the room. So coming back to the sort of picnic, blanket idea. I think for me, if I'm working in a group, then I will always start with, with somebody, with the group story. What's, what are the stories in the room? And, and if I'm, so if I'm teaching dietitians to do the exercise, or, and when I'm doing the exercise myself with the group, if the words are very skewed, so that there's only words that are seen as socially unacceptable, or, or only painful words, if, Somebody sat in the room thinking, I love being down at a one. I love being that famished. It's going to be really hard for them to say that if all the words are, you know, really painful words, um, nauseous, lightheaded, poor, what, you know, whatever they are. So, so this, I think the role modelling then is I would generate more words that, that might go on it, but not as a starting place. But I think the thing of... I think there's a re something really, really key about helping people set their story to words for people that have language. Um, not everybody does. And I think that's where creative expression comes in. You know, drummers, dancers, drawers, your story. It's something I, I put in a poem. 
Um, so I use my own story in that. Drummers, dancers, drawers, your story. I'm telling you mine, for its narrative is a drive. It's a strong hand outstretched to reach you. When you're casting around for another thread for your weft, take it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, it's not everybody that's got language, but, but most, a lot, most of us have. And when I'm, I'm in that case, I think helping people set their own story to words is absolutely crucial. Because if we can't make sense of our story, we will always be in a state of confusion. And if our own story doesn't make sense to us, we live in a, in a it's very hard for us to connect with the world in a way, in a way that's meaningful. Nothing makes sense. There's one of the overarching theories that I've drawn a lot is salutogenesis. And you might have heard of it. So salutogenesis, there was a researcher Anton Antonovsky, who was working, he was an American Israeli working with menopausal women. And he realized quite soon on that within this group of people, there were a small but significant number of women who have survived the Holocaust and gone on to thrive. So they hadn't just survived, they'd gone on to thrive. And he asked himself, how on earth? Like, how? Just how is this possible? So he realized instead of until then health promotion had, had asked the question what why are people ill and he flipped it around and he asked the question what makes people well why do people thrive and one and he came up with this concept for measuring the the qualities the, the whatever the thing that it was that he identified as common among these women um that help them thrive and he labeled it a sense of coherence and one of the things, and it sort of speaks for itself, the sense of coherence is that people can make sense of their own story. So there's more to it than that. It starts with that you believe you're a worthwhile person. My life matters. So that's the underlying thing. You are worthy of love and respect again and again and again. But then if we can't make sense of our own story, we experience everything as white noise, just as this confusion. If you can't, if you can't identify an emotion from an affect, or if you can't identify hunger from thirst, or thirst from anger, or loneliness, or boredom, you're not then able to take care of yourself. In order to meet our needs, we need to be able to identify them. And if you don't have language, and if you don't have access to identifying body sensations, that's, for me, that's the work. That's where the connection happens. Yeah, that is incredibly interesting. So if we're so if we're talking about the way in which the spaces in which we are, um, you know, providing these stories to be told, essentially what you're saying is that first of all, we're making the inquiries of the group to see what's there to, you know, find Mm -hmm. out what people feel not only able to, but what aspects of my story feel accessible, what aspects Mm -hmm. of that, of my story feel like I uh, is permissible for me to express um and then um my understanding from what you're saying is then we um and then we can create a space where a a, a deeper or broader understanding about our own experience is made more permissible yeah i think that's absolutely key what you said there so you've said what what have i got access to um and of course there can be all sorts of things that that interrupt people's access to their own body story. But the body might be saying it in different ways. And of course, then it gets mislabeled. If we get labeled as lazy and greedy and undisciplined, and we believe that, then that's a really difficult place to get to I am okay from. 
So a lot of what I ask people, I reflect back people's story and it's like, that's not my idea of lazy. <laughs> You know, people tell me what they've, what they've tried and so, so the accessible, permissible, but also relevant. I think that when we're, when we're given the story, eat less, move more, be thin, white and middle class, be healthy. Uh, and that when the story is lifestyle and willpower equals health and well-being, and we, let's just add a bit of resilience in and maybe a bit of mindfulness practice, then it's really, it's really, it's really hard because we've already eclipsed so much just we've not just eclipsed it we've made it unthinkable to bring this into the room so i think always making these connections it's very much the you know the, the personal is the political is the physiological as well and the planet matters so it's a it's a relational way of of thinking about things that relies on connection but helping people make the connections and, and i use lots of different frameworks because we learn by comparing we already now. So the more different frameworks and metaphors and stories we can bring into a room, the more chance we've got that something in there is going to, is going to help somebody identify something that's relevant that they feel speaks to them. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And the, and the, the frameworks which have been set up around, um, you know, uh, around healthy eating and moving more and all that ridiculous mm -hmm. kind of uh, very healthist, um, yeah. elitist, you know, th those are very elitist frameworks. It also sets up this yeah. sense of, you know, this, this, it, it makes so many assumptions around accessibility, around, um, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, it just makes yeah, just so many assumptions and also sets up this narrative of if you don't do this or you're not willing to do that, then this is your fault. It is then I've your fault. lost your feet. Oh. Oh, that, can you hear me now? Uh, I've just got, I've just got you back, Fee, but I lost you for a few moments there, I'm afraid. Oh, okay, no worries. Hang on a second. Um, Let me see if I've, I wonder if I've got stuff open that I can close. Um, here we go. Oh, exit. I might do the same thing actually. Hang on a second. So Lucy, yeah, essentially what we're talking about is this kind of framework of, um, you know, this very, very healthless narrative which kind of sets mm. up expectations for people that May, that does not in any way, shape or form take into account folks' accessibility. It kind of, it talks more about, you know, are you willing to do this? Are yeah. you, um, uh, you know, what do you, what do you want to do? You know, and kind of, mm -hmm. I, I feel like a lot of this, like a lot of the behavioural approach almost sugarcoats this, um, all these uh, all these very, hey, do you know what? I'm going to start again. Hang on a minute. I've got to get my question right. What's my, what's my statement or what's my you question? You're doing great. You're doing fantastic. You're role modeling. You are role modeling how to have an interview. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. You're great. You're great. <laughs> okay. Start again. So what we're essentially talking about here, Lucy, is really this kind of healthist framework that has been set up in so many countries, including the UK and Australia and, and elsewhere in the world, which leaves a lot of people to the side who, for so many reasons, um, it's, it's, it's just simply not 
not accessible and certainly dietetic practice is very much a part of that a part of that model so i i i love the way that you talk about um, storytelling and how we can um, and how we can create that space where people can come in contact with their own experience and with their own story in a way that makes sense to them um, mm -hmm. and that in lots of ways we are the very very fortunate um, conduits to that mm -hmm. um, so so I'm curious to hear a little bit about you know you do um, quite a bit of training with other dietitians how mm -hmm. do you kind of where do you start with that in, you know, introducing these ideas to, you know, when, when, uh, you know, when dietetic training is really still kind of rooted in, in traditional paradigms? So again, start, I start with, it's not the opening question, but that's what I'm doing. And I ask people why they've come. What, you know, what is it? Because if people have taken, people are busy, you know, they've paid or they've arranged to be take two days out of practice. So there must be something that they think that they're going to gain from it. Mm. And sometimes it's validation. It's knowing that they're on the right, you know, that they're on the right track. Um, and it starts with what's, what's the problem? What's, so I'll start around weight. What, what works well? You know, what's, what's not, what, what's not working well? What's the scope for change? What, um, uh, you think, what data are you relying on? So it's, it's not me telling people what to think, but when we've got all this information, people will discover it for themselves. Basically, people discover it for themselves, and then I help them theorize it. So mm. very, very quickly, we get to, so what framework do we need to think about here? And I am not beyond using hangman if necessary. <laughs> because if people discover it for themselves, they know, I might have asked the questions, but very often, I'm not telling people something they didn't already know. Yes. And for me, that's really, really important as a way of, it's a, it's a critical pedagogy. It's really important to enact that as a way of teaching because that is, that is, that is liberation. That when we can, because then I'm helping them to make sense of their own story. So I've not told you anything you didn't already know. How was this knowledge repressed? Because then, if we've only got two days together, then when we understand the deep principles of it, we can carry on the conversation. We have the, the ways to think things through critically mm. when we're not together. And that's very much for when I'm working with people on a one-to-one -one as well. And to keep on reflecting back. Have I told you anything you didn't already know? No, I haven't. Very, GI, you know, GI, a bit of nutrition science and the data, the data on, uh, on weight science, I'm very, I could bore you to tears with that. I'm very familiar with that. But what's interesting, and that so both for dietitians and clients as well, people know, people will come to me asking for the Well Now Diet, the Well Now Weight Loss Diet. I'll ask them, have you tried before? Oh yeah, and what happened? Oh, it was great. I lost a shed load of weight. I did this, I did that, and then what happened? And then I go back to the story. Do you remember what you told me? So, because what's happened is the scientific, or the pseudo-scientific narrative, so it's held as science, it's so powerful that people will erase their own story. They know that is not their story. So it's not just getting people to tell their story. It's not just creating that space for people that, that want to tell their story, but it's also um, helping people to take their own story seriously and their own experiences, their own emotions, their own doubts, their own confusions, their own distress. That for me, that's, that's the work. That is, you are worthy of love and respect. 
you can take your own life seriously. And I think what's really alarming, when people realise that they've gone along with this thing, they've invested decades, decades of their lives. And when people get the deep roots of it, then, it, then they realise this is not about, this is not just about food. Food is the vehicle. You know, food and eating and my body are the vehicle for the deep work. Mm. As, you know, however deep that is that they want to go. It's deeply painful for people, isn't it? When, when we, um, when we, you know, pull, pull back, you know, some of the layers or when they do that, I should say, not we do that, they are able to, to do that for themselves, mm. the pain and the grief. Um, and then I, I can't help but think that, you know, our ability to, to sit with some difficult emotions within ourselves that, that either, mm. you know, limits or um, so heavily influences our mm. ability to sit with the pain of another person, mm. right? Mm. And I think within dietetic narratives as well, this idea that we need to fix people. Yes. And that pain is somehow, and this is, I think, a more general social norm, that pain is somehow, we shouldn't be feeling pain, it's somehow a feeling of, you know, that we move to fix that as well. So I think, and I know when I'm working with dietitians, that is one thing, because it's a very, it can be a very strong part of somebody's professional identity, is to be getting it right, to be, to be the good dietitian, is to be telling people what to do and having things to tick off and, you know, all the rest of it. So helping dietitians to explore that themselves, because if that is my idea of a good dietitian and I want to be a good dietitian, that is going to be my default. Absolutely. So it's, it's untangled, it's dismantling. What is it that keeps us in place? And, and the, the, what, how we construct being a good dietitian is part of it. Mm -hmm. So we're constructing that. And, and for me, again, that's where compassion absolutely comes in because it's hard, like you just said, it's hard to sit with an awareness that one we, th we thought we, that we can act with integrity we can feel that we are acting to rigorous science we can act in accordance with people that we really esteem and later on further down the line we can feel that we've got it all wrong and that's really hard mm -hmm. there's a lot at stake so reiterating again and again that you are okay you know that the that we are account yes we have power we have accountability we need to be responsible but that's not the same as saying that we're not worthy we don't deserve compassion we do mm -hmm. so uh, lucy with compassion in mind tell us a little bit about how you weave that into the work that you do i i'm guessing i could easily be wrong mm -hmm. i'm guessing that um sometimes it may be an explicit conversation but i'm guessing that it is more implicit with you know and kind of woven all throughout the the work that you do that you speak about that you share so do you mind talking a little bit more about that because even though um you know compassion is rooted in ancient um wisdom mm -hmm. um thank you modern psychology um it's now you know, you know, now we're kind of in that, in that space where we're understanding a little bit more about the intersections of, um, you know, the, the way we, we care for ourselves and then, and then particular well-being, you know, the, the way that we show up in the world and well-being outcomes and all this kind of stuff. Thank you, science. So um, tell us a little bit about how you kind yeah. of weave so, it in. So two things come to mind. One is that 
what I found really helpful when I'm talking about compassion is to also bring in an awareness of binary thinking. Because if there's, if there's right and wrong, and somebody feels that they're in the wrong, it's a very hard place to get to compassion to. So the binary, the, dis, the, the disconnect, I think, is, the, is the, the death of compassion, or it stops it from flourishing. So I think they're really, really interrelated. That's, it's a linked way of theorizing things you know, in a one-to-one. Well, what comes to mind when you said um, about compassion? Again, it's helping people discover it. So there's an exercise that I do. Um, I've got a short, a short clip um, on YouTube on it. So the, uh, what do it, the magic biscuit or the magic cookie. Oh, I love, I love it. I love the magic biscuit. That was, I think, where that's the first time I actually heard your voice and I was like, oh, that's so cool. The the talking biscuit. So cool. I'll put a link to it. (laughs) I love it. Okay, great. Yeah, that's great. So when I do it with a group, I will ask people, I've got a group of people and I will ask, and I'm looking at um, legitimizing foods. So we're doing this. And so I create this imaginary plate of biscuits in the middle. And I will say to people, I want you to imagine that you're a dieter. What are the biscuits saying to you? And then I get people to write it down. And then I, I work on that. We do some other stuff. And so we finish the exercise. And then at the end of it, I theorize it. So I say to people, what happened? When I asked you, what are the biscuits saying? What happened? And what generally happens is, there's a sort of nervous laughter. Did she really ask that? <laughs> and yes. The point is, in that, that we're not laughing at each other. We're laughing at the absurdity of the situation. And, and so I sort of theorize it that what happened was that people weren't pointing fingers. People weren't laughing at each other. They weren't laughing. They weren't being harsh with themselves. But, and then, and what happened in that is that people know that they're not alone. They know that they are not, by me asking that question, they know they are not the only person in the world or in this room that chats to the biscuits, that has these long conversations. And, and we, have, we can have a different response to it. So, so we've theorized, it's a theory of compassion is to being, this is the reality. The reality is I'm struggling with these biscuits and that really sucks. That is the reality. Then common humanity, other people feel like this. I'm not alone with these feelings. Um, and the laughter shows that it takes us out of isolation and interconnection. It's, so, it's such a simple thing and it's so powerful when we theorize it. And then the third one is being able to comfort ourselves, to be warm with ourselves, my feelings matter. My emotions matter. I'm okay. This too will pass. Uh, and then if people have got a yoga background, we might explore it more. May I be well? May, may everybody be well? A, so I get the group to generate that. And then we've just theorized compassion. And I have this hangout that I do, the compassion, um, strengthening the compassion muscle. So helping people to understand that our default is often judgment. And we have strengthened the judgment muscle. We're there. Before, we didn't even know it. You know, the compassion can be so atrophied. We don't, we barely know it exists. So I'm not, we're not fighting a narrative, but we can strengthen this muscle. And this is some of the key, just some of the really simple things that we can do. And again, it leads into other theories. So the sense of, um, a sense of agency, knowing that when we're in that really difficult place, there is something that we can do. So it sort of all ties in. Yeah, I I love how you um, how you 
various theories of, for example, um, compassion, and then your ability to link it in with how other theories arrive as well is just absolutely brilliant. That Lucy, that is just not how my brain works. So I deeply appreciate <laughs> your ability to think, oh, this is how this relates to this. And this is how this relates to this. Because of course, a lot of the different, um, you know, maybe the, um, the, you know, so, social psychology theorists and then the behaviorists and then the, um, oh, I don't know, the, the Buddhists and, you know, it, all these mm. different, and then maybe drawing also from feminist theory and, um, you know, parts of medicine and, you know, all these things, mm. they, they fit together. But, but mm. a lot of what I've, what I've kind of uh, realized is that a lot of the, a lot of their work has been so siloed. So being yeah. able, yeah. <laughs> so being able to kind of draw them together is actually a yeah. talent. A talent. I hope you add that to your CV. Being yeah. able to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it is it's absolutely brilliant. I love. I just want to come back for a moment, just to this sense of common humanity, and you're not alone. And a lot of um, a lot of dietitians, both both personally and professionally would be able to recognize uh that this is possibly one of the greatest barriers to folks being able to recognize their own experience as being valid and worthwhile um holding and and being attentive to being with um for those of us that are not necessarily doing group work, what are ways that we can foster this sense of common humanity when we are able to recognize how powerful it can be? What are other ways that we can, that we can contribute towards, um, you know, fostering this sense of, of common humanity, which then leads on to, you know, self-kindness? Um, your ideas around that? Um, one I, again, I think story, I think novels, novels, blogs, um, poetry, performance poetry, to be able to suggest some, you know, if somebody's interested to, to be able to suggest links to, to things that speak to their experience, I think is really powerful, which may or may not be specifically around food or bodies. Mm, there, might be, yeah. there might be something else there. And um, I think as, as well that if, it's, if somebody is telling me, an experience that other people have shared with me, then I might say that. Yes, because great idea. Say, you know, say a lot. Because I think one of the things we're also trying to do is to dismantle this hierarchy that in that relationship, I do have power. I want it to be power with, not power over. So, so I think that drawing when I draw on other people's stories as a source of valuable knowledge that that helps to dismantle the hierarchy where the only knowledge that counts is this a very particular um you know very particular knowledge from within the institution mm. you know I'm not sending people to randomized controlled trials <laughs> I might them. you know it might be it might be useful but not as the not as the backbone of of uh, not as the backbone of the practice. Hmm. I think the practice is about connection. So what will, what will help people connect? Hmm. And also I think that for some people, the reality is that when they, when they leave our conversation, they are very, very alone. They, you know, in a physical sense, they are very, very alone. So it's been able, it's speaking to that experience as well. That can be the reality for people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and loneliness is um, is potentially one of the um, experiences which blocks our ability to to be with and see yeah. our own our own experience yeah. because we do you know if we are actually alone we feel yeah. alone and we are actually very isolated and alone and that is emphasized through our contact with yeah. um, whether that's the education system whether it's the health system yeah. or you know it just it, it deepens that sense of isolation yeah that, that's why i think visibility is so important <laughs> to be visible in to be visible as ourselves as far as we can is just so important mm -hmm. and risky for a lot of people right yeah risky for all of us perhaps yes you know, yep. and, more, more, and more risky in some places mm. where do i sense myself where do i speak up you know and that's yeah it's an interesting one to keep an eye on yeah, yeah. definitely and, because, and, because yeah. feeling like we've got a strong foundation from which yeah. to lean into courageous conversations or you know um a space where we can where we feel like we can speak up without a part of us being um being kind of take taken from us or, or feeling mm -hmm. like we, we're, we're able to be taken mm -hmm. seriously or risking that we won't be taken seriously and speaking up anyway yeah yeah, and, and I think when you were talking earlier about the sort of compartmentalised knowledge and the sort of silo self, I see when I've started doing more poetry and sort of social action poetry, I've really seen that. Mm. And in doing the poetry that's made it more possible for me to speak up elsewhere. And I realised that I put into a poem the things that are hardest for me to say, mm. I've ended up sticking them into a poem and then it's just out there. <laughs> but that's because... I've got, well, you know, there's a, there's a group of, there's a group, the poetry group that I go to regularly and I know they'll hold me. I know yeah. it. And so that experience of being held like that, you know, the sky doesn't fall on my head. Nobody runs out screaming. <laughs> nobody beats me up. That is what it, that was, well, I don't say all it takes in, you know, because it's huge. I'm not underestimating, but in a way it can be so, it can be so simple in some ways. Mm -hmm. And that then gives me whatever it is, the audacity, the courage, whatever it is, to go out and take more risks. And I think as well, what I've learned is that sometimes, or that always, in fact always, a walking away is always a walking towards. Mm. I've left this thing, whatever it is, it could, maybe it could be an idea. I hadn't thought of it like that until now, but where I've left a group that I might have relied on, or, or might have had a strong sense of connection to, and it's always been a walking to, to walking towards something else. Yes. And the, the more that I've done it, the more I can know that, the more I can trust that. I love that. I love that. And the re one of the reasons I love that, Lucy, is because that feels so accessible um, for, for practitioners to be able to talk about um, stepping away from the ideas, yeah. you know, um, yeah. of, of diet culture. That's really accessible so that we're not, um, we're not kind of, uh, it, it's not this edge of cliff kind of sensation, yeah, yeah. you know, but that what are we moving towards? towards. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And there's another, there's another way that I think of it as well. Is, so if I'm dismantling the binary, one of the things, well, there's two, there's two things in it. Um, 
one of the deep principles is around creating choice because trauma has no choice. So again, as a practice, we have the practice of self-compassion, the practice of creating choice. And, and a binary, it, so if I want to dismantle the binary, then I've trained myself, I've, I've sort of paid attention to what are the things that I do in everyday language and everyday way of being in the world that reinforce a binary, that mm. just implicitly reinforce a binary. And one of them is giving two examples. Either or, it's a binary. So I've trained myself to identify these different things and then to create a third position. So when I give examples, like I'm, I've chilled a little bit now. <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time. So I've got into the habit of giving, of giving three examples. And now I've got into the habit, I do give myself a bit more leeway. I don't always give three. But I think if we're generating things, then to, I forgot, I'm losing this now, but to generate, oh yeah, so the walking away. So to generate ambivalence as a place, mm. as a place, you know? And for me, it's this idea that the chrysalis is as important. It's not just, it's in one of my poems that, and the um, caterpillar and the chrysalis belong here entirely in their own time and niche and skin, not as a would-be moth, not as a could-be butterfly, here, now, enough. And I think very often in a linear narrative, we're always moving on to this place that's going to be better and we're going to be more sorted. And we can leave our current self behind in that. Yes. But when we draw the focus back to now, then maybe somebody will always be ambivalent. And me fighting that isn't going to help because the minute I try and fight it, I'm in conquest which is what I'm trying to get away from. Mm -hmm. So when I theorize the deep principles, I can then, I learn where I'm doing it in my everyday conversations. And when I'm working with practitioners, I can help them to theorize it too. So that when I'm in a one-to-one, -one, I've got the deep principles of it. It might be something, it might be a new topic for me. It might be something completely new, but I've got these frameworks of thought, you know, generate, you know, three examples, generate choice, you know, avoid conquest that I can, you know, sort of divest from conquest that I can think within. Mm. I think that's a brilliant position to take because what it, what it does is it allows for ambivalence. I think we've been maybe trained, um, raised, definitely our mm -hmm. culture says, um, you know, make a choice and it has to be kind of one mm -hmm. or the other. Whereas mm -hmm. that, that's, I really love what you said about ambivalence is, I can't remember your exact words, but ambivalence is not nowhere. It's somewhere. somewhere. It's somewhere. Yeah. And I think as well, that the binary, the putting things against each other, mm -hmm. if I do decide to move to a new position, it makes it really hard to critique it. Yes. Because now I'm so certain I'm right. It's dangerous to critique this, this place. Especially if we've invested a lot in that place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And also if my identity comes then from being not this place that I've moved on from. Right. So I think that some of the things that we do in just the norms of language, they're, they're so deep seated and they have such implications for knowledge creation. Yes. That when we can surface those, then we can get to the deep roots of oppression. Yes. And, and also that it's the deep roots of oppression and it's building, putting, looking at the process that got us there, the process that will get us away from it, and envisioning an alternative. That's another thing that I've learned to do. Instead of just saying, I don't like this, it's 
envisioning what what does this what does emancipation look like yeah what does it look like what does it feel like what do you feel like yeah what would I be noticing yeah. myself doing differently how yeah. would I notice myself showing up in the world differently yeah. and that's the relationships I'm trying to build yes Yes, because, I mean, on, on a very, on a, on a more surface level, the position you're taking is somebody I am genuinely interested and I, am, um, I, mm. I care about your experience. Your experience matters. Um, you matter. Yeah. And if the folks who we're working with aren't able to feel uh, solid and stable within that position of that I, I matter, I'm worthy, I'm valuable, yeah. and this is what this means in terms of my yeah. existence in the world, then us being that conduit, yeah. I just think that's just, it's an incredible yeah. privilege to have yeah. of being yeah. you know, of being in that space with somebody together. Yeah. And I think as well, perhaps sort of catalyst that, that in, in meaningful dialogue, we've got your position, we've got my position, we've got this thing that we create between us. So that's equal, both, you know, that, for me, that is meaningful dialogue. And that can be really novel for some people. But then yes. also it means me unmooring from what I think I know. The unlearning. <laughs> the unlearning, yeah, the unlearning. Mm. Which, which, see, um, I... You know, we've been talking together for, you know, 45 minutes or so now. And now it's really interesting because I'm beginning to link things together. Even from what we've talked about today, I'm like, ooh, I must be a quicker learner than I thought. Because I'm like, ooh, then that's got to do with that. And then that's got to do with that. And all of them are different, um, you know, based in different, different theoretical frameworks. So, yeah, great, great. And I think that when we get the deep principles of it, Yes. Then we, we you've given you you know it's, we give ourselves these different frameworks to think within. Then it becomes easier. It's mm. when we have a framework that excludes things. It's then it's really really hard to be open to new ideas because yes. there's nowhere for them to land. There's just nowhere for them to go. With that in mind, Lucy, if you were designing a l let's just say rather than four or five years, let's just say you were designing a two-year master's program dietetics program what are the different units and elements that you would put, just, just say you are the captain of this ship you're mm -hmm. running it there's no no red tape let's talk mm -hmm. utopia here what would you embed in that course so this is i taught a summer school in canada at the mount last year and i was allowed to teach on anything i wanted and I chose compassion and creativity for critical nutrition practice. Oh my goodness. And then this year I did another summer school and I think I called it something like understanding trauma in learning and behavior or something like that. And, and then and one of the exercises that I really love doing is glossaries. So I'll ask, this, I'll ask the class, what words do we need? You know, we're going to go forward. What are the words? that we need and what words do we need to create? What are the things that need labeling that we can't talk about? So a lot, I pay a lot of attention to language throughout as a sort of integral practice. So I don't think I do one particularly on language, perhaps one on storytelling. I think, 
Yeah. And, and I think real life nutrition, body first, how do we teach nutrition in a way that is meaningful for people that help, again, helps them make sense of their experiences. And the, more of the politics, food politics, but not in a way that pits one way of being against another. Mm. So I think the sort of thinking about thinking mm-hmm. as well as that, that would be in there, but perhaps that would be integral, not a, not a module in itself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, sign me up, Lucy. I'll go back. I would go back in a heartbeat. You're, you're teaching one of the courses. What do you mean, Fee? Yeah. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Well, the, the topic is not necessarily my choice, but the content is. And of course, you know, when you can, um, when you have the, the you know, uh, the, the privilege of being able to, um, to spend some time with future dietitians, it's an incredible oh, opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity. Like their minds, are just, like, you know. I have, I have absolute hope and faith in the dietetic profession from the students I have met at Mount St. Vincent University absolutely inspiring and there was a few students who weren't dietitians and their professions too they were just absolutely fabulous yeah yeah we're going to see well my prediction is we're going to see hopefully in my professional lifetime we're going to see quite a few changes um because we well without without stepping into the binary um (laughs) having a third (laughs) option i yes i feel like we're going to either disintegrate or go on to um you know go on to make you know quite significant changes in the healthcare system so we'll say no a third one fee a third one here we go do you know the idea of the performative yes yep (laughs) yeah so so to expand the dietetic performative what does it mean to be a dietitian love it so which which doesn't mean it which doesn't mean erasing what it already means, but expanding it to mean these other things as well. I think, and for me, that's one of the things I want to do to help, to help diet, you know, to help younger dietitians, people new to practice, or people just right at the end of their careers who were just thinking, maybe I can do this differently. Yes. Again, I think there's something about role modeling it and setting a precedence mm-hmm. and, and just con- contributing to the work that's already been done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what does it mean to, to do dietitian? Really? Dooby dooby doo dietitian. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So, um, you know, being, um, being within different communities where we can understand, um, you know, and reevaluate our ideas about what it means to be a dietitian and how you know the variety of different ways that we can show up and mm. and uh you know do things that are valuable to us yeah. and to the world and how we can you know make make contributions in a way that mm. makes sense to us and makes sense yeah. to other people and and speaks to uh you know like you were talking about before speaks to the more the deeper needs of of people in yeah. terms of connectedness in terms of kindness yeah. um you know meeting people where they're at and understanding that you know health is not an obligation and all those experiences which are just so formative to us as, as humans 
Um, Lucy, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know you speak about it so beautifully, is what do you feel like are the most important aspects of the way trauma can show up in a room that dietitians need to un more deeply understand? Because as far as I know, it could be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. um, it's really not spoken about in our training and there's mm -hmm. there are not that many explicit opportunities unless we're working um, you know uh, perhaps in eating disorders or perhaps in uh, mental health dietetics um, that it's not something that really gets spoken about quite a lot so I'm curious to know you know what are the most how can trauma show up in in a room in a body and what are the most important things that a dietitian needs to understand Mm -hmm. um, so I agree with you that we don't know that we're not taught I think we're not taught about it and we're not taught that we need to know this that this is crucial this is pivotal to this is pivotal not just a good therapeutic not in that this is pivotal this is pivotal if we want our practice to be non-traumatizing yes but if we're not aware of trauma we will be re-traumatizing re regardless you know, of our good intent. Mm. So, so that trauma, somebody may or may not know that they have a history of trauma. And we don't need to know that in order to be able to work in a way that is trauma informed. Mm -hmm. For me, it's learning to listen for the hallmarks of trauma. So um, disconnect is one. And sometimes it would depend if, if somebody has, um, I would find out if somebody, like how familiar people are with counselling through nutrition or through any other form of counselling. And it might be that they volunteer, you know, say through anything, you know, that you'd like me to know. It might be that they'll say something within that. Um, but if, if, if they don't and, and there are signs of disconnect, then I will, uh, that's the term that I will use. It might be that I'd later go on to say trauma, but I would use disconnect because I don't want to put words... I don't want to set somebody else's experience to words. And I was checking with, I said, this is, you know, yeah. So look at disconnect and helping people understand what I mean by that and why I've suggested it. So very often it will be around um, difficulty in naming body signals, in identifying affect and emotions. And when people are very bewildered by their own behaviours, helping them to understand that as some sort of disconnect. Mm. And then knowing, um, so if people have difficulty feeling, so knowing what questions to ask, to find out whether, yeah, to find out the capacity that people feel they have on a day-to-day -day basis for feeling things and also if there's instances where logic seems to go offline mm. Mm. yeah so just a, sort of non-intrusive questions that help somebody build up a picture themselves and help me build up a picture yes and then sorry go on i was just going to say so what you're essentially doing is in a very gentle compassion compassionate way is helping folks to be able to almost peek around the corner of their 
yeah. their experience toward, towards mm -hmm. rather than, you know, attaching or avoiding mm -hmm. in a way that fosters that sense of curiosity yeah, and, absolutely. you know, is, oh, yeah. it's interesting rather than I don't want that. That should yeah. not be happening. Yeah. And that's so the shoulds, catching the shoulds, you know, yes. the have to, must be ought. So reflecting back people's use of that. And I think people begin to see the patterns themselves. Yes. And when we can identify the patterns, then we can know when we're when we're back we're back in that pattern. And and then so helping people to generate options, helping people with body awareness, with grounding themselves. Helping people listen to how they're speaking to themselves and what the implications of that are. Mm -hmm. And then other routes of self-expression. And, and I think as well, um, when you think about peeking around the corner, I was asked to write a chapter a while ago. And it was the first time I'd really put my story, really sort of set my own story to words in that, in that sort of arena. And I realised that dieting, I was writing this, this thing about when I was, um, I had a long period when I really, really struggled with food. And I was diagnosed very late, but the, very late the diagnosis was anorexia. And that dieting, it nearly killed me, but it probably saved me too. You know, maybe it saved me. And that's really made me think, I'm not trying to stop this person from dieting. I'm not trying to stop them from doing anything there. So, so I think there's something about that. It, so it has to be safe. The space that I create, first of all, it has to be safe. And then somebody has to be able to trust me. And me trying to change somebody is not a safe place. Mm. Mm -hmm. so even, that, even if it's diet recovery, right? Or eating absolutely. disorder recovery. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think of it as a discovery. You know, the, the, and, and in the UK, the whole recovery model is it's just really, really problematic. Mm. It's completely neoliberal. It's, you know, be compliant and get better self-esteem, not tackle austerity and racism and stop abuse. <laughs> so, so I work with an, it's called an unrecovery model. But, with, and then, but it's helping people to discover things for themselves because then people will pace themselves. It's not me. It's helping people join the dots, but it's not me pointing things out. Mm -hmm. Well, especially when folks are trying to recover in a framework that tells them that their eating disorder is bad and harmful and, and wrong in so many ways. Yeah. So it's yeah. no wonder that, you know, individuals, groups and communities have, um, you know, taken this on this kind of framework on yeah, line yeah. and sinker and then are less able, I won't say unable, I won't jump right mm -hmm. on that end but are less able then to see their experience as being really functional like really functional yeah yeah we're taught to think within a particular political framework and the one that you've just described the the, the previous one is completely neoliberal mm -hmm. there is no trauma doesn't exist in it mm -hmm. you know there's no past there's no privilege there's no oppression you just get on with it pull your socks up and try harder mm -hmm. um, and when we can flip it or just expand it, so this is one way of looking at the world and what about this and what about this and how do we make sense of this? Uh -huh. And exactly like you say, that the eating disorder is not the problem. The eating disorder was the solution to a problem uh -huh. and helping people see it as resourceful. And yes, it, it can be, um, they can experience it as corrosive. It can be really distressing. And it is, again, this, 
it's these two things and it's also a really really resourceful response mm-hmm. so the, the thing of helping people to label and to rename things and to relabel things mm-hmm. because then we can get different perspectives on it and again that as a practice maybe here's this thing i've thought of i've only ever thought about it this one way all my life maybe i can expand that maybe i can think differently that that as the practice is the practice of curiosity and we're doing it compassionately we're not rushing to fix or judge somebody for it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that, i think that way of being with knowledge with our own stories is yeah that's that's the, he, the healings in there definitely it's absolutely revelatory to people to think that, um, you know, quote unquote, overeating as, you know, as diet culture might call it, or, or binge eating as a, as a behavior. It's mm. revelatory for people to think that it is not this shameful, embarrassing, yeah. um, awful, worst thing you could possibly do in a whole world mm. kind of behavior. But instead, there's a way of holding us. It, yeah. It's help. Like, yeah. and for some people, you literally see their, face like what what Mm-mm. what no 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 that's not that's not how it is <laughs> mm. yeah and, and also even the idea of overeating that i will say to people how do you know you over it and they will say well it was x number of this or i was too full or whatever you know and then we'll sort of sit with it and the thing the point is that we will always eat exactly as much as we need if we can afford it, you know, if they've got access to it. So the whole idea of eating has become this utilitarian thing where we can calculate what the right amount is and what overeating is. So even the term overeating will explore that. Yeah, I love that. Because it's what's right and what's not right. And again, when it can, and then people will catch it for themselves. They're like, oh yeah, here's that thing. I ate what was right, I ate what I needed to do to get me through or for whatever reason. So they've begun to attach their own meanings to it. And really, really importantly, they've begun to allow themselves to question this orthodoxy yes. that says overeating is wrong and it is a thing. I'm saying, I don't think it's a thing. It's not a thing. Like, show me. Show me this thing called overeating. I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never met it yet. Maybe I will, you know. But So to sort of play and play with and explore these concepts that seem completely beyond scrutiny. Mm-hmm. That seem like an that ultimate monolithic. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, it's opening it up because trauma is monolithic. It has no choice. Mm-hmm. So it's opening up these concepts and phrases and the ways that we're tiptoeing around or stumbling over them, saying, well, we can prod this differently and see what happens. Let's give mm-hmm. it a go. Yeah, I love that. Being able to uh, almost, well, if, um, I guess it's in some ways it's psychologically in a lot of ways it's biologically as well kind of stepping back from our experience yeah. and, and seeing yeah. things as they're arising um, and being able to be responsive rather than reactive so it's really fostering those skills of, mm-hmm. of compassion and self-care and mm-hmm. and holding our own experience mm-hmm. um, yeah as we moved as we all all of us not just mm. our clients. I really don't like this idea of, you know, we're, mm. that we're somehow not healing ourselves as well mm. as professionals. I think, you know, I, I've come to really deeply understand that we're all healing in so many ways. Mm. Yeah, and learning. If I want okay. to think differently, you know, a month from now than I currently do, then there's things I'm going to unlearn and things I'm going to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And if we could go back and have conversations with ourselves 20 years ago, then, um, yeah. <laughs> 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 Over a few beers down the local. Oh, goodness. Oh, my goodness me. Um, so, Lucy, you are coming to Melbourne and I could not be more thrilled. Is this going to be, I know, <laughs> it's going to be a little bit of temperature acclimatisation, let's just put it that way. Um, but tell us a little bit about what people can ex expect, like from, from the two days that we're going to be spending together. Well, I'm really excited to be doing this training because I've, as you know, I've publicised it as advanced training, which means that there'll be such a, a whole heap of experiences from all, all different ways in the room. And that I want to use those, I want us to use those in the training. So it'll be very much looking at um, what I want to do is to use the opportunity for us collectively to explore some of the things that we take for granted in community. Um, so there's some things that I think that I've changed my mind on or I've come to see differently and I'm interested to know how do other people see those? So particularly around how do we integrate trauma? How do we make practice trauma informed, not trauma as an afterthought or an add-on? Yes. So I think of it as, a, I think there's a lot of the theory that I've been using today. There's places where I've found where it's been designed for the non-traumatized, privileged person or privileged body. And somebody who is neurodiverse or who, who's experienced trauma or who's marginalized or who's poor, they're an adjunct experience. They're decentered from it. So I'm really interested in how do we shift so that our default is this inclusive place. It's not something where we're adding on people who've been excluded. It's this more inclusive place. And the way that I've done it, like you were saying earlier, it's to be trauma-informed, compassion-centered and justice-enhancing. And the theories that I draw on is the sort of things we've been talking about now. And deep theories of peace building. That's the ways of being in relationship that build peace. I think that's it. If we want health, we need fair societies. If we, need fair, if we want fair societies, we need peace. Yes. We need security. You know, so how do we envision and enact a world where nobody's starved of food, connection, dignity and security? Through, often it's through the lifestyle conversation or that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. People will come to us because of body shame, mm -hmm. because of troubled eating, because they want you know, to feed their children, but, you know, in particular ways, and because they're in distress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wish you were coming next week, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait. It's going to be, um, I, I think, you know, it's going to be an incredibly valuable conversation for people that have um, got a really good grounding in, you know, in a non-diet framework and kind of understand the underpinning mm -hmm. theories and, um, and, you know, everything that, in, that informs that particular, those particular mm -hmm. practice principles. Um, so I, yes, I, I just absolutely can't wait to spend that time with you and to really dig down into some of these conversations, mm -hmm. which, you know, we haven't necessarily been privy to. And especially as a, as a community, I think it can, any way that we can have conversations, which, um, which, allows us also to peek around our own corners and to mm. and to notice you know what what we are 
what we are um, keeping hidden from ourselves and others and how we can show up more authentically and, and make the kind of contributions that we want to make, not only to our profession, mm -hmm. but also, like you say, to, um, you know, to a more peaceful world for everybody, not just certain people, everybody. Mm. Um, so, Lucy, anything, I feel like we've talked, oh, my goodness, about a lot of things. Is there anything else that you would, love to mention anything else coming up um any i'd love for people to be able to find you you're doing a lot of work in education and training which is um you know it's mostly based in the uk but how, how can people kind of get in touch with you so uh, on, through my website that would be a good place um to start and also i'm in hong kong before melbourne so if there's anybody listening who's in hong kong please do get in touch um yeah, so mostly on my on my website, but I'm not the world's best on the website. I am getting better. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! And you just so I recently joined your Facebook group. Um, I've got a head injury, so I need to avoid screen time. Um, I'm getting a lot better with it, and I'm not the best person anyway on Facebook. But I do hope to be more actively involved in that. So hopefully, I'll be showing up there more. Yeah. Oh, we would, yeah, we would absolutely love to see you. And of course, you know, respecting your own um, boundaries and capacities. As I say to everybody, it's like, just, you don't have to engage. It's okay. <laughs> no, and thank you for creating that space, Fee. It's yeah. really fantastic. Yeah. Thank yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Lucy. I really appreciate it. Can't wait to see you. Um, have, have a wonderful rest of your day and um, I'll be speaking with you soon. Lovely. Thank you, Fee. Thank you so much. What do you say? Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.